What's your purpose in life? That's a big question, which most people don't like to think too deeply about. But one thing's for sure, we are meant to use our God-given gifts for good. Hey folks, it's Karen G. from Tower Hills Communications Team. Thanks for listening into our weekly podcast. We hope you get inspiration and clarity from today's message. So feel free to share this with someone that you know so that maybe they'll feel inspired too. It's time for chapter 20 in our sermon series called The Story. This week, we hear the story of Queen Esther and how she influenced a kingdom. So let's kick it off to Pastor Jason Tucker right now. We're in this sermon series called The Story. We've been living in this series for a little while. Does this feel loud? Yeah, I got a couple yeahs. Just bring it down just a a tick. Thank you. Well, as we're in uh, this story, we're basically looking at the Bible from Genesis to maps. Like cover, cover to cover, right? And we're going through, and hopefully, though, it's okay if you haven't been with us during this whole journey, that each series or each message will stand on its own, and you'll be able to catch up. Today, I think, is really fascinating because it's getting at a question that all of us ask every once in a while. God, why am I here right now? Why do you have me here? What's going on? Why... Why am I in this place in my life? Why am I in New Jersey? I mean, (laughs) how do I end up here? Or maybe it's to do with your work or something. There's something in your life that you wish was a little different, that you wish was at another level. You feel like there's a barrier between where you are and where you want to be. And you wonder, God, why hasn't happened for me yet? I pray I'm being as faithful as I can. I'm trying to make good, faithful, godly decisions. Why am I not over there? Am I doing something wrong? Am I not hearing you properly? This is a question that comes up over and over again. Why does God have me here? And I think today's scripture, today's part of the story, really shines a light on the answer to this question. And that is the story of Esther. Uh, Esther is one of my favorite books of the Bible. We don't talk about it much, but it's such an amazing look at what it means to live a life faithfully, to live as faithfully as you can, even though you don't know why you are in a certain spot, trusting that God has you there for a reason and what to do. So let me bring you back to where we are in the story. We're just before the New Testament. We're almost getting there. And incidentally, in two weeks... There's a break between the Old Testament and New Testament, and I'm going to be teaching on uh, basically how to read your Bible. (laughs) I'm taking all the stuff that we've been putting off from all your questions about the Old Testament, and I'm addressing them in that sermon and looking forward to Jesus before we start the New Testament. So that's in two weeks, just to mark it on your calendar. Right now in the story, we are in the Persian Empire, about 500 years before Jesus Christ. And just a reminder... The Persians ran everything from North Africa all the way to India. And the first king we talked about last week was King Cyrus. And the king that followed him is the one we're talking about this week, who is King Xerxes. King Xerxes became famous. If you've ever seen the 300 or you know, anyone, I, I'm a pastor. I don't watch movies like that. But <laughs> anyway, King Xerxes, most everybody's heard of King Xerxes. And 
that where this story of Esther takes place is in the citadel of Susa. And basically, if you remember last week, King Cyrus said, okay, all Jewish people, you can go from wherever you're scattered and go back to your homeland, rebuild the temple, repatriate your land. But that's going to take some time. It's not like today when news comes out and we hear about it in, you know, 15 seconds. This would take decades at least for everyone to even get the news that people were coming back to their homeland. So the Jews are still scattered around the Persian Empire. And we start the book of Esther with a party. Just kind of refreshing. Esther chapter 1. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet, that's Xerxes, lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastenings of, or fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble, marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions. Hello. <laughs> now it's a party. No. For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. And I know some of you are thinking, is this heaven? <laughs> no, it's Iowa. No, the, um, well, it's fascinating, too, because just as an aside, part of my job is I do preside over a lot of funerals. It's one of the ways that I'm asked to partner with families as they walk through that difficult time of their life. But... What's profoundly sad to me is that people think this is, is kind of like what heaven is. Like, oh, you know, I, I know he's up there having a scotch. And like, I just feel like your view of heaven's way too small. If you think like having a scotch, like, yeah, I mean, scotch is great. Right? But that that somehow is your view of heaven is this party where the alcohol is flowing abundantly. That maybe, just maybe, we need a little bit bigger view of what the kingdom of God party is going to be like into eternity. Okay, that's my little editorial. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehumen, Litza, Harbana, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass. By the way, I don't know how any of those are really pronounced. You just say it with authority. To bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. Here you see a drastic difference between Kingdom of God parties and King Xerxes parties. It was all about what he owned, what belonged to him. It came back to him. Look at my wife, the object that I want all of you to look at and be jealous of. That everything was a possession to him which is in stark contrast to kingdom of God thinking. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. We were like, good for her. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Well, 
as you could probably imagine, King Xerxes deposed Queen Vashti and started to search for the next, you know, uh, the next queen. And the way that they did it was they said, you know, assemble kind of like the finest women in the empire and I'm going to get to choose. And they're going to go through 12 months of like beauty treatments and everything. I don't know. Sound familiar to you? Where have I? (laughs) Maybe things aren't so crazy, crazy different as we like to think. But anyway, the way that it all worked was these women would go through these beauty treatments and then he would offer them a rose or he would, no, he would select the next queen. Now I'm going to tell you something that you already know, but just as a reminder, what was true back then is true today, beauty can open the door to influence. We know this. There is such a thing as influencers. And it's usually because of their beauty. We know that they have influence. What's amazing to me, though, is I think what the story of Esther is, is not just a story of beauty and influence, but what do you do with that influence? Maybe God can even use that influence if you let him. And it made me think of uh, Miss America. Now, I mean, listen, everybody pokes fun at beauty pageants and and all of that. But here's what I will say about Miss America, which I think is fascinating. I think it's a nice um, example of how beauty opens the door to influence, but then real meaningful work can happen. So uh, Miss America every year works full-time for the organization, travels like a crazy man. It's like 20,000 miles a month. There's some crazy number like that. Speaking to businesses, nonprofits all over the globe and becomes the head of the Children's Miracle Network and also is allowed to champion whatever cause is near and dear to their hearts. And they end up doing a ton of good and having a ton of influence because beauty opened that door. I think in a similar way, This is a little bit how the story of Esther begins to unfold. Let's continue. Chapter 2, verse 5. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. So we know that um, Esther's life has not been easy so far. She had some tragedy happen, and Mordecai stepped in and became her stepfather. And now she finds herself, she gets selected to be presented as one of the beauties to be considered by King Xerxes. And it goes on to say that all the women who, they did 12 months of beauty treatments and said Esther only needed 10 months. And it, it was a way of saying she was exceedingly beautiful. And she is chosen by King Xerxes. He is smitten by her immediately, chooses her to be queen And Mordecai, interestingly, tells her to hide her true identity, her ethnicity as a Jew. Turns out, this was pretty wise in the end. So the plot starts to thicken now. And 
what's fascinating, so Esther becomes queen, and then Mordecai enters this kind of political struggle that happens. So let me just sort of abbreviate what goes on with Mordecai. Mordecai actually saves King Xerxes' life. And the way that that happens is he's sitting outside of the gates, and he overhears some guards talking to each other about how they want to overthrow King Xerxes. Mordecai doesn't know what to do with this. He kind of struggles. He goes and he tells, uh, tells the king through somebody else, and Xerxes is saved. But they don't know that Mordecai is the one who tipped him off. Then King Xerxes hires a prime minister. His name's Haman. And Haman loved being the new prime minister. He loved everything about it, all the power that it afforded him, I mean, every, all the perks, like he was all about power and he was absolutely insane. So you give an insane person all that power and it's like not a good thing. So the new prime minister sees Mordecai one day outside the gates and notices that Mordecai doesn't give him the due honor, right? He doesn't bow down and genuflect in front of him. This makes him mad. But, and this is where kind of crazy comes in. He's thinking to himself, that Mordecai, he's a Jew. Therefore, all Jews must go. We're exterminating them all. He's just symptomatic of the real problem of this race of people who, by the way, may one day rise up and be a threat to us. So better to take care of them now. It seems throughout the entire story, everybody's trying to exterminate God's people. This is another moment. And this is the part where Mordecai reaches out to Queen Esther and essentially says, do something about this. Your people are going to be killed. Now, the way this worked was Haman kind of tricked King Xerxes because when the king made a decree, it was irreversible. There's no take backs when a king makes a decree in, the, in that part of the Persian Empire, right? So the king would say and do something and it was, he would use his signet ring that had his symbol on it and you can imagine melting into the hot wax over an envelope. So you've seen that before. That would make the decree official, and it was irreversible. No matter what the decree was, it was a forever decree. So Haman goes up to King Xerxes and says, look, the Jewish people are a big problem. We've got to get rid of them. So we need you to make a decree. Xerxes says, okay, go ahead. And it's the most horrible decree because it just means anywhere in the Persian Empire, uh, they can hunt down and kill the Jews, and the Jews are not allowed to defend themselves. They just get exterminated. And the city is in chaos, and there's all kinds of sorrow, and Mordecai is, people are in mourning, and Mordecai tells Queen Esther, you got to do something about this. And Esther at first is like, I don't know. Not because she didn't care, but look at now where she was in her life. She had nothing, and now she's got everything. No matter how things worked out, she was now in a place where she was going to be okay. And through a messenger, they speak to each other about this issue. Esther chapter 4. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, the messenger, to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. 
So what she's saying is, look, Mordecai, I would love to do this, but do you understand what you're asking me to do? The king hasn't summoned me, and that's the only way I get to talk to the king. Yes, even I, the queen, I have to be summoned. If not, then the law is, if I go unsummoned to the king, he could punish me by death. Now, did she really think he was going to do that? I don't know. But it was her reaction to Mordecai's request. Said, look, do you understand what this means for me? Remember, he had a vested interest in her. It's her stepdad. Since her father and mother died, he was raising her. Like, he loves her. She's like, do you understand what you're asking me to do? When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. I imagine she really let those words sink in. Maybe it's possible that you were noticed by King Xerxes, that you were in a position even with what happened to your mother and father and you're with Mordecai, that maybe your life had been orchestrated to such a point that you would be in this position of influence for this moment in time to save my people. However she took it, it clearly meant something to her based on her response. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king even though it is against the law and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Now, Esther has a great relationship with the king. Just like we saw in the beginning, Queen Vashti was a bit of a distance from King Xerxes. King Xerxes would give Esther anything, and he said as much. Anything in the kingdom, I'll give you. You just tell me. You just name it. He was so in love with Esther. He was so taken with her. Tell me what you want. You got it. So she uses this as an opportunity, and she says this. Okay, here's what I want. I want to have a banquet. I want to have a banquet with two people there. You the king, and Haman, the prime minister. That's what I want. Done. Sets it up. And at the banquet, she uses her intelligence and her courage and her faith to unfold this plan that she had put together that would solve the issue at hand. So while they're both there, she has the banquet. I think there's this cool, yeah, this cool piece of art that I found that was, had them at the banquet. And she says, okay, oh king, do you know that there is somebody who's trying to exterminate my people? King's like, what? No, that can't be. We will punish whoever's doing that. Who is, who is your people? She's like, I'm a Jew. And Haman's the one who's trying to exterminate them. The king, of course, outraged, takes care of Haman. So that immediate threat is over. But remember, the problem is you have the irreversible decree. No take backs. The decree was made. They all get exterminated. 
And what's fascinating, between her and the king, they figure out a workaround. This was the king's suggestion in Esther chapter 8. Now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews as seems best to you. And seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. So they figured out what that should be. And that was this. Allow the Jews to defend themselves when they get attacked. Remember, it's a huge number of people. And they'd be able to defend and protect their families, their homes, their lives. And what would happen was everybody would realize that this was the workaround decree and they wouldn't keep trying to exterminate the Jews. It was brilliant and it worked. So you had two conflicting, irreversible decrees, but everybody knew what that meant. It meant peace for the people of God. And now we get to a real party. Verse 16, for the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews, with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. In other words, they saw, wait a minute, their God got them out of this crazy situation again Let's hitch our wagons to that God. Amazing, right? There is no way she saw this coming. Beauty can open the door to influence, and it certainly did, but it was Esther's God-given courage, faith, and intelligence that saved them. Here's Here's an interesting thing is that early on in Christian history when they were putting the Bible together, and even back when they were putting, you know, deciding which books belonged in the Old Testament, that's a whole thing that I'm gonna get to in two weeks. What's fascinating is there have been movements to try and take Esther out of the Bible. Do you know why? Because if you read it, there's no mention of God in it. Which is fascinating. Because to me, when I read it, I see God everywhere in it. It's the playbook on how to live out your faith in real life. God doesn't have to be mentioned. He's the one in the background orchestrating everything. Which, incidentally, is why it's still in there. I mean, I'm not the only one to think that, clearly. It shows how to live in the world, being faithful to God, using God-given gifts for his kingdom. It's also amazing foreshadowing, right, of the king of kings, Jesus Christ, that the king's irreversible decree would be that all who put their faith in him will be saved, no matter what. No take backs. Jesus isn't going to change his mind. It's done. The decree's been made. He has sealed it with the Holy Spirit. Even he on the cross, as he breathed his last, said, it is finished. It's the same decree that offers life to all of us. So I think this answers the question, why does God have me here? 
Maybe it's for such a time as this. Maybe God wants to use your beauty, your gift, whatever that is, to open the door of influence. And then once you get that influence, to use it for him and his kingdom, not for your own self-gain. I think that's the difference. Why does God have me here? I think, honestly, it's sometimes like a vineyard, since we're talking about wine today. Did you know that sometimes, depending on the soil, there's only one variety of grape that's going to work? Often, I think this is why you and I are planted right where we are. Dear God, why aren't we over there? Because you're the variety that's going to work right here with what you've been given, the gifts that you have. God wants you to be in the soil that you're in. Because he wants you to make a difference. He wants you to flourish in that soil. Yes, he might one day replant you to different soil, but let him worry about that. In the meantime, you just worry about being as faithful as you can with what you've been given. Because you have been given influence to make a difference. You are an influencer. An influencer for God's kingdom. And it comes back to something that we said a couple weeks ago. What's our job as Christians? To bloom where we are planted. Who knows? Maybe you've been planted here for such a time as this. How does that change things? I think one way it does, at least for me, I think about, like, it makes me give thanks for where I am. It makes me feel gratitude that God's got me where I am. All the frustrations aside, whatever frustrations you might be feeling that you're not there yet, maybe it can help recalibrate you to think, you know what, I'm thankful for where I am. I have hopes and dreams, but let me just be faithful in this moment, in this place, and I'll let God deliver on the hopes and dreams. He's better at it anyway. This is a chapter in your story. Amen. As the band comes back out, let me offer a prayer for us today. Lord, may we, in all that we do, Recognize that all our souls need is your love to cover us. Help us to give thanks for where we are. Help us to be faithful with what we've been given. It's okay for us to have hopes and dreams. In fact, you say in Scripture that you grant, you're the one who grants us hopes and dreams anyway, but. Let us not be so focused on our future that we miss what you want for us today. Maybe lives will be affected. Who knows what miracles you will work because we bloom where we're planted. That's what we pray for today. In Jesus' name, amen.